You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Break a Bat Podcast, where baseball meets Broadway. An attempt to show that my two favorite mediums don't have to live in such separate worlds and maybe even break some stigmas. We're happy to have you with us. Now let's play ball. Hello and welcome to Break a Bat, where baseball meets Broadway. I'm your host, Al Malafronte, coming at you for the Broadway Podcast Network. And today we're joined by someone who needs no introduction to Yankee fans. As a student of the game, I've always admired folks in the media who were able to show me another side of my favorite performer. Uh, so much of what we love about baseball players and Broadway stars revolves around the stories behind the big game or the big show, what's happening backstage or in the clubhouse. And so often when you're in the limelight, it's hard to find reporters that cover your work the right way. Uh, radio is a lot like podcasting when it comes to your relationship with the audience. It's a very special thing. And when you're so invested in your favorite sports teams, uh, what your beat reporter has to say always becomes gospel uh, because they're around the team so much and get access in a way that we can only dream about. Our special guest today has served as the Yankees beat reporter for 20 seasons on the Yankees flagship radio station WFAN here in New York. He's also a contributor on MLB Network and SNY for Yankee coverage, and I'm so grateful he could join us tonight. So with that being said, I ask you all to please turn your attention to home plate. Just beyond the marquee, now batting, Sweeney, Murdy, Sweeney, welcome. Thanks for that great introduction, Al. That was awesome. Uh, it's such an honor to have you here. Congrats, man! Twenty years on the beat is no small feat. This is uh, yeah, this is season twenty-one right here. So uh, I, you know, I, I'm get, I'm counting a full year of service time for myself for last season. I hope nobody minds. <laughs> is there like a, a beat reporters union that's uh, lobbying for that? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, I get my full uh, full rights. Uh, uh, get my service time. Yeah, it's a big. Uh, no, I'm I'm just teasing. It was uh, yeah. This is year twenty-one. It's. Um, I haven't found anything else better to do, so let's keep doing it, right? I agree with you, and I've always been curious about this. You know, in baseball, at least for me as a Yankee fan, every year has such a unique identity. When you look at your career, is it all kind of lumped together for you? Do you break it down by chapters or eras? You've certainly seen and covered a lot, so I'm curious to hear your perspective. No, I, yeah, you kind of, it's funny, because I always tell people, like, I always look forward to the beginning of a season. I always look forward to the end of a season, you know, and, and I like that it's, I like that there's just a beginning of beginning and an end, and it, it tells a story and its own it's, and it's its own story. Um, I used to have my scorebooks for every season. Um, I don't keep them all anymore. It's they've it's just, it's become clutter. And I keep some of them, um, and it's just too easy to look up stuff on my phone instead of you know racing into a room to find my scorebook. Um, but I keep some of the things that I like, but. It, it that is still a way even like metaphorically i still have all the scorebooks because uh i i know what each season was and when you drop you know whether it's 2001 2004 2012 something like like there are certain memories that i know exactly what that season was uh, sometimes as you get older you have to start to think was that was that 2013 or 2014 but but for the most part like you know, this is kind of what you do and you've, you've known for a long time. You, you mentioned a year and you kind of know what it is because that's, it's why they keep score. It's why they, you know, uh, crown champions and things like that. 
Now, I know you started at the Fen going all the way back to when you were still a student at Penn State, summer internship. You started to do some full-time production work for the station in the 90s. At the time the Yankee beat reporter position came up, they were in the heart of really one of the great dynasties in the history of sports. Um, how did that come about? I know Susan Waldman was doing it originally. How did you kind of get yourself on the circuit uh, you know, for that position? Well, in the summer of 2000, I was into my third year doing overnight updates at FAN. I had, uh, uh, in July of 98, I had started as the overnight update person. Um, and so this is now the summer of 2000. And Susan Waldman, who had been covering the Yankees uh, since the late 80s at the radio station, uh, was moving to a show. She had moved to the midday show uh, as a co-host with Jody McDonald. And they were uh, letting her do both, do the show from 10 to 1 every day and do the Yankee stuff at night throughout the rest of that season. But then they were going to make uh, a change and she was just going to work on the show. So, um, as word of that kind of trickled out on the radio station, I just, I pulled Mark Chernoff, our program director aside one morning after my shift. And I said, listen, I don't know what you're doing with the Yankees next year, but you know, I'd like you to know that I'm interested. And, uh, I said, I remember him going, Oh, really? Okay. And you, you know, I just scrolled down on a pad and, um, you know, later that summer, I, end, I, I, I was already scheduled to a bunch of other stuff and I, I went to, Sydney with Westwood One Radio to cover the Olympics and uh, came back from that. And it was, we were, baseball season ended, right? Pretty much when I came back from that. And that was, um, I guess, I don't want to say it was assumed, but ever since I mentioned it, there were no, you know, there had been indications that I was, you know, I was pretty close to, to getting it and that I would get it. So I think right around the uh, Christmas party that year, um, I, pretty much got the official word that I was going to do it. And uh, I went to spring training in February, 2001. So um, it, it just took me having to tell them that I was interested. I, like, I'm not sure that anybody would have come up to me and said, Hey, do you want to do this? Because naturally they were getting lots of people who had interest in that job and several at our station. But um, I told them I was interested and, you know, I'm thankful they gave it to me because here, here we are. Yeah. And I mean, of all the times that they could give you that position, it's right in the heart of the dynasty. Yeah. House. You, I'm right? sorry. You, you mentioned that. And I was like, I, I, I walked in in the spring of 2001. These guys have won three straight world series. And, um, you know, all I did was mess it up because they won one in the last 20 years since. But, um, <laughs> I, I like to tell, I like to think that I am the Bill Cower to Susan Waldman's Chuck Knoll. Um, it's, a. Uh, I'll, I'll run with it. Even if we don't buy it, I'm going to run with that. Um, hey, listen, it was fun to watch those guys just chasing. I mean, what were they going to win? Like seven in a row? Of course not. Um, they won three in a row and they came within a whisker of winning a fourth in a row. My first year was 2001 when they lost game seven in Arizona. Uh, they went back to the World Series in 2003 and had a two games to one lead and lost to uh, the Marlins. And then, then they took a few years before they got back again. But you know, whether they won the World Series or lost, you still saw a lot of great competitors and a lot of great teams. I mean, I, I got to be around Hall of Famers on a daily basis um, and watch how they worked and and just kind of get to know them on a personal level and watch them on a professional level. It was it was really great. And it's it's still one of the amazing things is just watching these guys who are just so good at what they do and you know, not just watch them on TV or in the stadium, kind of watch 
how the sausage is made, so to speak. You know, you, you kind of get to see uh, the work that goes into it and appreciate everything that they do. Now, did it take a while for you to earn their trust? I, I, I naturally, yeah, I would think so. Um, I think one of the things you kind of learn is that, and it's probably not unique to baseball players or baseball. It's just, I think it's human nature. You know, everybody kind of watches everybody and you kind of figure out things by watching how that person acts and interacts with other people. And that's really what was happening inside the clubhouse. You know, um, I went around introducing myself to guys and told them who I was, but then, you know, I, I didn't, I, I don't think that I like forcefully did anything to kind of you know, make my presence felt. I just show up to work every day, you know, and when you show up to work every day and you go about your job a certain way, I think people notice. Um, so just naturally, as I, as I kind of learned and, you know, made my mistakes asking dumb questions or asking questions that got dumb answers is probably the best, better way to put it because, you know, that's, it's really all you're searching for is you're searching for the answers. Um, I, I, you just, yeah, I, I think it takes a while to, to earn the trust of like, what you're after, what your intentions are, and how seriously you're taking your job. Um, and I, I hope if I showed them anything, it's how seriously I was taking my job and that I, you know, that one, I did know a little bit of what I was talking about, but I didn't know everything. And I wanted to, you know, and I, and I didn't want to come off as, as though I did. So I'm asking you questions to better inform myself and my audience as well. Now, dumb questions are one thing, but Tough questions are another. How much does the relationship change when you have to start asking the tough questions? Was there anyone who ever really gave you some pushback? Um, I, I think after you've been there, it's almost easier to ask the tough questions in some ways because you know they they know it's not like a hit and run. You know they they know where it's coming from, and that if there's any issues, you know you can if there's any issues with the incident or the question or whatever. You know, it's not hard to find you. They can talk to you uh, five minutes later, the next day, however, whatever they want to do. Um, it's yeah. Sometimes it's hard because you know you. Uh, I think I want to be at least sensitive to the idea that it is a tough question to ask and answer. And you know, it's it's not like it's in the movies where you're shouting questions at people um, and you know it's this crowd of people around everyone's just screaming, you know, every, there's a rock, you know, and, and there's a, the press conference in Rocky five is not how every media session happens. Um, so yeah, it's, it's difficult sometimes, but I think when you do cover them on a daily basis, know them, I think they understand where it's coming from. And let's remember, these guys are not under subpoena. They're not, you know, they're not under oath They're They don't have to, they can, they can curse at me. They can yell at me. They can refuse to answer the question. They, you know, they don't, they don't have to answer it. Um, but I think if they understand what's in everybody's best interest and how you're going about doing it, I think that leads maybe to an easier way of doing it than uh, if it was being asked by someone who didn't know them personally. I totally get what you're saying. And you know, I've always been curious about this too, Sweeney. Part of your job entails traveling with the team. Every road city, you're living out of a suitcase basically two, sometimes three weeks a month from April through October. Was it tough to adapt to the road life and, you know, haven't done it for this long? Do you still enjoy that? I, uh, yeah, I, I liked it a lot initially, um, you know, because it was breaking away from working in a, in a dingy studio and, 
my first assignment is go to Florida for spring training. I mean, goodness, why in February when it's cold in New York, how many of us don't want to do that? Um, and I, and you get to go to the games, the games, you know, the games are on the fun, uh, are the fun part and what you kind of, everything that you report on or about are revolving around actually getting to the game. And when you get to see the games and go to the games, that's the fun part. Uh, so I enjoyed, you know, I traveled the country, um, with my company paying for it. That was awesome. Right. Um, and you get to go back to multiple cities and kind of learn different things and, uh, kind of experience that. That was great. I was also, I was 30 turning 31 and single and did that for 10 years until, you know, I got married when I was 40 and that's when the, uh, just the idea of traveling, the aspect of traveling, uh, and everything that entails changed a lot. Um, it did become, there's still something really cool about being at the ballpark, right? But the travel part of it became less enjoyable because of just some of the hurdles that you had to deal with and some of the things you're missing at home and people you're missing at home. And um, so that has become a little harder. Um, and as you and I are talking, I don't know when people are going to hear this, but as you and I are talking right now, uh, I'm still in a period where I haven't traveled in a year and a half. So um, I've been at home and cover baseball and uh, still do it this way. There's going to be a point in time where I'm going to go on road trips again at some point. And we're going to have to all get used to that again. Um, but it is definitely harder. I can recall. There's one. It's, maybe it's because we just passed Memorial Day. That's why it's stuck in my head. But I remember Memorial Day in 2000. I want to say it was 2012. Um uh, yeah, it was 2012. My daughter was, what, maybe eight, uh, let's see, eight months old. And her and my wife were at a friend's house for like a regular Memorial Day barbecue cookout type of thing. And they sent me a picture of them like by the pool and things like that. And I was, I vividly remember being in Los Angeles, as far away as you can be, walking across a rental car parking lot to my hotel to try and get it. So I get to the flight the next morning and it was like, I couldn't have been unhappier dragging my suitcase across that parking lot at that moment. Um, and that's something that every once in a while, probably around Memorial Day, usually it's uh, it's what pops into my head. But those, again, these are the adjustments that you make as you get older and travel and different things and different, there are different elements. I mean, nobody, nothing happened while I was away uh, weeks at a time when I was in my thirties, cause I was living by myself and I was single. So, um, you deal with that differently as you get older and, and I'm not alone. I'm not trying to tell you, I'm not the only, you know, everybody who does this job has things that like that, that they have to, um, think about performing with. I totally get what you're saying on that front. Now, when you're covering the Yankees, you're covering them for 162 plus the postseason more years than not. There's no vacations, right? You can't say, oh, I can't do this two-week road trip on the West Coast. It's like you're there with the team every trip, every game, right? I, For the most part, yeah. I, what I did, what I, I did have um, in 2003, I had, I had to take a weekend series off in Boston uh, my cousin was getting married and it was important for my family that I go. And you turn down a lot of things in the summer from family uh, when you're covering baseball. You, you just do. Um, they made it pretty known that it was important. Luckily for me, 
the wedding was in California and the Yankees and that were playing in Boston and then they were going to California. So I just, I went to the wedding and uh, covered uh, uh, and then met up with the team in, I think it was in Oakland or San Francisco or someplace like that. Um, so that part was pretty easy. Um, but yeah, there are, you know, uh, there are not opportunities to take weeks off at a time. I did have the uh, either good or bad timing of uh, having uh, both my children born during the summer. So that was timed away from the team. Uh, I, and, uh, you know, that's still something that um, is, it's great. This, the, the company was really great, obviously, but understanding what was happening and, and how to cover uh, road trips, things like that. I haven't traveled as much the last couple of years for a variety of reasons, even before the pandemic. Uh, so uh, I'm still making some of the road trips, not all of them. But um, yeah, there was for a good period of time, I did not. I covered seven weeks of spring training consecutively without missing a day. Eight, 81 road games without really missing one. Um, so uh, that was that was all part of it. But yeah, I had. I, I got married in August, had a child in August and another in September. So uh, there have been opportunities along the way to say, you know what? I can't make that trip. See, I never knew that. And that's something I've always wanted to ask you. And, you know, another thing that I'm really curious about is you have a lot of different guys on the beat. Many of them are long tenured like yourself. In theory, you're competing with these guys for stories and access. But at least on the outside, you seem to be pretty good friends with all these guys, be it Brian Hoke or Mark Feinstein back in the day, Tyler Kepner. Is it ever tough to separate your friendship from the job you have to do? No, I think we all understand that. Um, I, I think we all, you know, I, I think we're all. Listen, me personally, I probably took it harder when I was younger, as you're trying to think of it as a competitive standpoint, make your mark. I've gotten a lot better at this as I gotten older, but you're generally very happy when someone else gets a story and you're like, wow, great job. You know, earlier in my life and career, I'd be like, oh, gosh, why didn't I get that? You know, and and now it's, you know, it just comes with a little more maturity and a little more security in yourself than uh, than anything, I think. Um, I, I think, I, I think there are a lot of really great talented people who cover this team and I genuinely enjoy reading what they write and seeing what they produce. Uh, it helps inform my coverage too. And, you know, hopefully I'm helping them do the same with some of the things that, that I, uh, talk about or, or write about or report on. Um, but yeah, when you think about it, like I said, I would spend seven weeks of spring training and 81 road games in the year. This is the group of people you're traveling with. These are the people that you see in the press box. And these are the people that are staying in the same hotels as you. And you're, you know, you're sharing, you're eating meals. We, it's probably not true anymore. Um, I think enough time has passed, but Mark Feinstein and I at one point were used to joke that we had had more meals with each other than we did with our spouses uh, because of all the time we spent on the road. Um, and I, I, th I think your spouses have caught up now. I think, I think, <laughs> I think they've passed, but, um, yeah, it helps to, you know, to just get along with the people there and there is a competitive element to it, but it's not a zero sum game either. It's not you win, you lose. It's, you know, Hey, this person got it. Great. Maybe I'll get the next one. And you still have work to do, you know? So um, and thank, hopefully, and thankfully our bosses understand that too. 
Absolutely. Now, going back to the play of, uh, player's perspective for a moment, do you feel like your job allows you to sometimes dictate the public perception of some of these guys, be it with their performance or even likability? Is that something that ever crosses your mind? Um, I think one thing that I've probably started to... Th- I, I think I can inform a little of the opinion, but I don't think I can change it. Um, I, one of the things I really like to do is just add context to every part of it. Like if, if you're sold in the fact that this player is no good, I, I kind of like to point out some of the areas and things where maybe he is good and you're not giving him credit for, or the contrary, where if you think this player is great, I might want to point out some of these other areas where, okay, well, you know, maybe think about this or think about that. And maybe this is places where he can improve where he's not as good as you think he is. Um, so I'm always trying to figure out the balance to that and inform people. But I also know that they're going to make up their own minds. And I don't, I don't want to be the one telling you this is how you must think. And maybe it probably comes across that way sometimes. And sometimes it's inevitable when you're trying to, when you're trying to give your own opinion, it, it all, it almost has to come across as you should think this too. But I understand that that's not how it works. I mean, I think if we learned anything in the, if I learned anything, I think we learned anything in the course of the last couple of years in this country, one of the hardest things to do is to change somebody's mind on any subject. Um, once you've made it up, it takes a lot for you to flip to the other side of it. And there are a lot of heavier subjects that we could discuss that, that that's true of. It's absolutely true in baseball too. And all you got to do is look at my Twitter feed on a daily basis and you'll figure that out. It's really, you know, it's really not that, um, it's really hard to, to once somebody has made up their mind, to get them to see it from the other perspective. But I'm, I'm always trying to figure out what the balance is. I don't know if I'm winning or losing that battle or if it's even possible, but I, I, I don't think I'm doing my job properly. If I'm not trying to give you another side to what you're seeing or what you think you're seeing. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sweeney, one aspect of your career that really fascinated me was the way you covered A-Rod. Obviously, no one more polarizing during your tenure covering the Yankees. Was he tough on you? Did you, did it take a while to like develop any sort of consistency in that relationship? Because I feel like some days he'd be around the batting cage as your best friend. And then other days I'd listen to, you know, the post game show or whatever. And he's acting all aloof. And I just, it was like a tale of two Alex's. Is that like kind of accurate in assessing uh, him? I think you've read that pretty well. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that I have ever really figured out um, how, how to break that down necessarily for you any better than you just did. Yeah, you, you didn't really know. Someday, there, and it wasn't even days, there were, just, I guess, probably periods in his career where 
your relationship was different than others. Um, a lot of it had to do with stuff that was happening in, in what was happening in his life and how I had, what I did to report on it. Um, I, I, I think once we got past a certain point, um, and I was pretty tough on him for the things that he had done, uh, in the latter part of his career, uh, I, I think he took that a certain way. And, you know, uh, I, I don't think our, uh, relationship was friendly a- after that point. And it's, it's fine. I'm not even, there are plenty of players who I've covered who I did have a friendly relationship with, but it's not like I call them and text them and have dinner with them. I mean, it's, it's just how you do your job. Uh, and then you, and then it's, and then it's over. Uh, so even the ones that I'm friendly with are not necessarily friends of mine. If that, if that makes sense to you. Um, yeah, he was difficult. I, I I think it was fun at first for him and me. Um, he had like I I knew him a little bit when he was with the Rangers as I first started, and he always had this eye to New York. Once I got once he got to New York, he saw me every day, so that part changed a little bit. Um, and it was difficult because as we talked about earlier about the idea of asking difficult questions. You know, that's yeah, I had to do that a lot with Alex. And it, you know, I, and I'm sure that changed that changed his relationship with a lot of people that way because you had to start um, diving into things that were not necessarily fun things to talk about. Um, it was, I, I will say this, uh, and I believe I, I said or wrote this right about the time his, um, his career was ending with the Yankees. I would love to be able to say that he was the best player I ever saw because my eyes and the numbers probably tell me that that's true. Um, but because of all the other factors that went into making him who the player he was, I know that that's not an honest appraisal because the, I don't know how honest the player was that I saw, but if you just take it at face value of what you saw in the field, I never saw another baseball, a better baseball player up close every day the way that I saw him. Unfortunately, there are all these other things that are tied into it that that take you where you are. You know, what's interesting is that going into 09, there was a lot of talk about like that clubhouse being fractured. And it's so interesting from when you started in 01, the clubhouse almost changed overnight going into 02. I remember when the Yankees lost that division series in 02. Mm-hmm. And Jeter started this series of quotes that I feel like he would say all the time. He'd be like, well, it's not the same group anymore, buddy. Like he would always Absolutely right. I'm, you know, wow. (laughs) Because I I think about that and I'm, I I, I love that you remember that because what I vividly remember was after they had gone down two games to one in Anaheim, um, you know, they have their backs against the wall game four. All of a sudden, you know, this team's on the brink of losing here in the division series, which was unthinkable to this group that had just been to four straight world series and came with a whisker of winning four straight, a team that blew through the regular season, hundred plus wins. So I think the question was phrased to him something like, well, you know, do you, do you take confidence from the fact that you've been here before that you've come back from this before? And he, you're right. He said, not this group, this group hasn't, you know, this group had, you know, O'Neill and Brocious were gone. Uh, Tino was gone. Uh, so new people had taken over there. And even though there were still plenty of people who were just there the year before, he, you know, he knew to, he knew that it was not the exact same thing and to point that out. 
And I'm, I'm actually surprised that you remember that phrasing exactly the way it was, because that's exactly what it was. I, I, you know, you talk about how you remember things that are just so specific to certain years. That's one of those for me, especially like, the, yeah. I guess, you know, for me, that was like the peak of my Yankee fandom, especially. I mean, not to say that 09 and 11 and 17 weren't great, but like 02, 03, 04, 05, 06, like really stand out. It, one thing I've always wondered too is, you know, to touch on that, what was perceived as a fractured clubhouse. I know Joe Torre felt a lot of stress during the later years of his tenure with the Yankees, 05, 06, 07. A-Rod was a huge reason for that. You had some different personalities in there. Did it make your job more difficult, you know, throughout navigating those years in particular? Um, I don't know if I ever perceived it that way. I, I just think, I mean, I was just trying to do my job and, you know, it, 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 however presented itself, it did. Um, I think it was kind of interesting. I think it was, it was fun to be on and talk about them because, you know, you knew it wasn't just a given that they were going to win, which is what it almost felt like at some point, you know, um, in 98, 99, 2000, even though you can go back to those years and I still think about them, there are, there are little lucky breaks here and there sometimes that, you know, if one, one ball goes one way versus the other, it changes the whole complexion of a series. And there's a series of little breaks that make them um, champions versus, um, you know, versus not. And I don't, I don't know that I ever, like, you could see that it was different and that these are the questions being asked of them. But, I don't know that I ever sat down in like 2005 or six and thought, you know, this is a different team and it's making my job more difficult. I think I kind of, I think by that point, one of the things that I had probably uh, done was take the player's perspective of, you know, my job is like, I have to do my job today, you know? So let's, let's do your job. Let's do our job today. And I do have kind of a responsibility to see a bigger picture type of thing, but um, I, I'm not sure that I saw it quite the same way that you're talking about, but obviously there were, you know, they were going in different directions. Players were getting older. That was the other big problem that, and, and Joe Girardi inherited this. It was, you know, Joe Torrey had the good fortune of getting all these players on their way up and Joe Girardi had all the same players on their way back down. And like all of their careers ended on Joe Girardi's watch. That was not an easy thing to do and navigate. And I think that's what you were kind of seeing over the course of, say, from 2004 to 2014, you're seeing the result of having all of these great players come up and the pressure to keep them in Yankees uniforms and give the fans what they want. Go back and look at some other teams and how, you know, look at the, you know, when the, uh, the Giants won a bunch of World Series, they signed a bunch, they signed a bunch of their stars and kept them in their uniforms and watched it all plummet because, you know, they're, now they're tied up in long-term deals of players who aren't performing at the same level. The Phillies went through the exact same thing. Uh, and, you know, the Yankees were able to do something those other teams weren't. They're still able to supplement, you know, so when they re-sign all their guys and they still need more money to go sign somebody else, they still have that. So they can still bring in 
Giambi and uh, Matsui and Randy Johnson and keep bringing in people to supplement on top of this, whereas the teams that held their core together because they won and they felt the pressure to do it, once that core starts aging and sliding back downhill, they're kind of stuck and they don't have a whole lot of room to, to, to go anymore. I don't know if that even answered your question. Well, yeah, you know, I was just curious because you mentioned Randy Johnson, for example, just a much different personality from, let's say, uh, Paul O'Neill in 2001 from when you first got there. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of, you know, having access to these guys and uh, whether or not their their personalities made, you know, your day to day a little bit more. I I think you kind of learn how to navigate like the different personalities. You just kind of have to figure out, okay, when's a good time to approach this guy and when isn't, you know, I never, you know, I only had O'Neill for one year. My first, and it was my first year. My first year was his last year, and Brocious too. And I, I didn't particularly, particularly have a good relationship. I thought with them in two thousand one because, like, I didn't really know how to do my job yet, and I and I hadn't really figured out how to connect with them. So um, a lot of that is on me. Now I've had some wonderful opportunities in the years since to interview both of those guys, or just chat with both of those guys and it's fantastic but i know that that year i myself had a difficult time connecting with those two guys because here they are at the end of their careers and i'm i'm a rookie trying to figure out what to do with myself and i i just didn't do a a good enough job um in, in trying to in trying to figure them out well, I think the way that you've evolved in your career is so noticeable for us as listeners, and it's been an absolute honor to watch. You're really the That's good stuff in Yankee coverage. Yeah, of course, sweetie. And I do have to tell you, though, it might get a little tough here on this podcast for you with this little segment that All we right. do to wrap every episode of Break a Bat, okay? Uh-oh, okay. I want you to picture yourself in that batter's box. Ninth inning, game's on the line. Araldus Chapman is on the mound throwing 105 miles an hour. Uh, we'll ask you a question. You tell me the first thing that comes to mind. How does that sound? All right, let's do it. All right. You could be the lead in one Broadway musical. What is it? Oh, the Karate Kid musical that's coming out at some point. I got to interview uh, Robert Kamen, the screenwriter of the Karate Kid, and he told me that they had this plan because we're talking about Cobra Kai and all, how much fun it is to watch that. And he said, they have it. They had it written and planned, and you know, then the pandemic happened. But you know, they've got this whole thing planned out where, you know, especially with uh, uh, Ralph Macchio and Elizabeth Shue and, uh, and William Zabka are all going to be coming to the premiere in that yellow car that, uh, that he loves from the, that he has from the movies. So, um, yeah, why not? Karate, Karate Kid the Musical is going to happen. Let's... You know, let's let's put me in that. Yeah, we'll have you as uh, Ralph Macchio or the That's, actual Karate Kid rather than Johnny Lawrence, right? Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I can. I'll I'll crane kick him all day. I'll do it. <laughs> Favorite New York City meal? New York City meal. Um, that's a good question. You know, I just I just listen. I love pizza, so I'm just you get me pizza anywhere here. I'm not a Chicago pizza fan. I've traveled to Chicago. I've eaten their pizza. I don't like it. Um, I've traveled other places and pizza's okay. New York has pizza. I tell people all the time, New York for the pizza, Chicago for the blues. Don't mix the two up. That's that's a pretty good uh, motto there. I like that. Better Yankee career, Jason Giambi or Mark Teixeira? This is a big uh, source of debate with some in our audience. Better career. 
Um, well, you'd probably have to say Teixeira because he won a World Series ring. I think they both had, you know, they both had big productive years earlier in the career, suffered through a part of the middle, tried to finish strong. Um, the, the World Series ring is probably the separator there. You grew up as a huge Phillies fan. I did. Who's your all-time favorite Philly and your favorite Philly moment? I would. I, I don't know that I had one, but like I was. Te- I read somewhere that everybody's ideal of what baseball should be like is they want it to be what it was like when they were ten years old. So it doesn't matter when you grew up. If you grew up in the era when there were you know, eight teams in each league. And that's when you were 10 years old. That's what you want baseball to still be like. You, whether it was you were 10 years old when Sandy Koufax was in his prime or when Mike Trout's in his prime, that's who you want baseball to be. Well, when I was 10 years old, the Phillies won the world series. And, you know, that's a feeling you don't ever forget um, as you're a kid and your team wins the championship. Um, Steve Carlton, Mike Schmidt, Larry Boa, Pete Rose, Bob Boone, Manny Trio, Gary Maddox, Greg Luzinski, Bake McBride, Tug McGraw. These are the guys who were the 1980 Phillies, and all of them were my favorites. So the 1980 Phillies are the team that really kind of has my heart, but as I got older, Juan Samuel was one of my favorite uh, players to watch. And uh, one of the great things about that was that when I first started covering in 2001, Juan Samuel was a coach for the Detroit Tigers. One day, I wander out before batting practice. He's hitting ground balls. I just introduced myself to him and started talking to him. And he has such a long coaching career in the American League that I would see him all a couple times a year and just start chat with him. Friendliest guy, nicest guy. So from the Tigers to the Orioles, later the Phillies, and I would see them in spring training a lot with the Yankees and Phillies games. I just got to know Juan Samuel. Uh, and when I go to the park, I'd say hi to Juan Samuel. Um, and that was, that was such a huge thrill for me because he was so much fun to watch. Um, what, but one of the cool things now about liking and growing up watching those Phillies teams in the late seventies, early eighties, the catcher was Bob Boone, you know, his son is managing the Yankees. So every once in a while I have fun talking about those teams and those players. I'm a few years older than Aaron Boone. So uh, I think my vivid memories of certain games are probably a little different than his, but his, he has maybe more vivid memories than I do because he was actually at the ballpark and, and knows these players that I'm talking about, or just watched their collected baseball cards of. So that part was cr- pretty cool. There were a I think in 2018, the Yankees played in Philadelphia. And as the Yankees are taking batting practice, there's a stream of people watching on the field. And I turn around and, you know, Larry Christensen is trying to flag down Aaron Boone to say hi. And Gary Maddox is flagging down Aaron Boone to say hi. Like, and I walked over at one point. And I said, you know, you know, your life is my baseball card collection. Like these guys are just, these guys want to say hi to you now. And, um, I thought that was pretty cool. So, yeah, those are fun conversations to have every once in a while with the manager. Um, and it's usually a good one to, to have them when they're on a winning streak because when they're on a losing streak, there's other things to talk about. Best Yankee team you covered that didn't win the World Series? 2012. The 2012 team, I th- I mean, I, I, I think that's going to be the right answer. But that was, you know, that was Derek Teeter's last really good year. Um Really, and he broke his ankle in the in the uh, ALCS against the Tigers. 
But that team started to have a little bit of the magic, you know, Raul Labanya's postseason hits. And uh, I think people, I think Hiroki Kuroda was on that team. And, you know, CC um, Sabathia hadn't broken down yet. And uh, Mariano got hurt earlier that year. So he was not on that postseason team. That's what made, you know, you, you wake up one morning, uh, one day, and all of a sudden Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera are not on a Yankees team that's in the ALCS. That was really something. Um, and they, they got swept in that series and didn't really come to life after um, after Jeter got hurt in, the, in that extra innings game one loss. But Alex Rodriguez had not started to fully break down yet. Robinson Cano had start, was really in peak form. Mark Teixeira was, hadn't started breaking down yet. These are, you know, that was a really, really good team. And um, I just would have liked to have seen how they could have responded if, you know, they didn't have uh, – I'm not – listen, Jeter Jeter wasn't carrying that team, but he was – that was his last great regular season. He was a really good player then still. Um, I would have liked to have seen how that team could have responded. I would have loved to have seen Robinson Cano lift that team up a little bit and even just win a few games, uh, even if they didn't win the World Series. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking now – the um, the 2012 team is probably the one that stands out to me the most, or at least it's the first one that comes to my mind. Wow, that's a great answer. I, when people ask me that, I think of the 05 team a lot. That summer was really special to me, and they kind of had that magic when they brought in like Chacon and Aaron Small, and like some of the the crazy wins that they had in September against like all the teams in their division. Like that summer was really special to me. To when I look back on it now, if you go off of like you, like you said that magic factor as far as postseason magic. Aside from maybe what happened in 01 and 03, nothing really tops 2012, come to think of it. Even the, the 17 team, too, I guess, against Cleveland and those games at home against Houston. But that's really interesting perspective. Well, but I never thought about 2012 that. 2012 also, if I'm, I think 2012 is the year they, they beat the Orioles in five games, and CC mm-hmm. Sabathia was a monster in those you know, games one and five. Um, and like I said, that was, that was the end of his peak healthy dominance for the Yankees. Um, and you had, you know, Ichiro Suzuki is on that team. And there, you know, Raul Ibanez, and there, there's, there's some, uh, Eric Chavez, there's some fun guys uh, who were still pretty good players then. Um, and they just seem to be gathering some momentum there. The 05 team, they were, they were floundering for half a season. And, I mean, I, I don't know. This is getting on way too long. You can edit this out if you want to, but the, the no, this is my wheelhouse. Me, Go. It's Oh five. The Yankees. funniest <laughs> thing to me about Oh five is that Yankees were right after the all-star break. They're in Boston for a big series with the Red Sox first series after the break. And they're going to play Sunday night and they're pitching as TBA on Sunday night for the starter. They don't have anybody to pitch and they've gone through guys like Tim Redding and, uh, Darren, Daryl May, Daryl May. Sorry. Yeah. They've gone through these guys and they've got, they, they, if you look at who they had in the minor leagues, just lined up to pitch on Sunday, none of them were physically or, you know, mentally or whatever capable of pitching against the Red Sox that Sunday night. So there is literally nobody in the organization who, unless they're pitching on short rest can pitch against the Red Sox on Sunday night. So the Yankees trade, I think on that Friday, they trade for Al Leiter um, from the Marlins. Now, Leiter has since told me that 
he didn't know that he was going to pitch on Sunday when he got traded. He thought he was still kind of working his way back and he was going to maybe report to Tampa to get a couple of weeks to get his arm in shape again. And they're like, no, 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 you have to pitch on Sunday. You have to come here on Sunday. So um, he shows up on Sunday and throws five scoreless innings against the Red Sox and they win that game. And uh, I just remember I had some interactions with Al when he was with the Mets because, uh, you know, because he was, uh, just from being in the city. And so I saw him that night before the game. And usually the rule is don't talk to the pitcher who's starting that night. And, but we hadn't, you know, had not seen Al Leiter yet. He just arrived that day. I wasn't going to bother. He walks up to me and says, Hey, how you doing? What's going on? Like, he's not bothered in the least. And so, and then he goes out there and throws the five scoreless that night. And it kind of starts the ball rolling for the team. And you mentioned Aaron Small and Sean Chacon. But that game was – remember, they won, They beat the Red Sox by one game at the end of the year. It's that game when they actually had to trade for a pitcher because they had nobody. The New York Yankees and their $200 million payroll had nobody available to pitch on a Sunday night, and they had to make a trade with the Marlins to get Al Leiter from them. I can't think of a better note to end on. And I remember that series so well, like winning that three of four and it really just catapulted things. And you're right. Lighter was a huge part of it. It's it's so much fun. You get me all excited for summer baseball here, Sweeney. And no one, uh, no one covers it better than you. That's for sure. So thank you for the kind words. Very, very much appreciated. I appreciate it, Sweeney. And uh, listen, for all the folks at home who may want to connect with you on social media, where's the best place for them to find you? Uh, my Twitter is at Yankees WFAN. You can find me there. Um, you can, you know, you probably already yell at me about stuff there. So just go ahead and find me there. You handle the trolls. Great. I got to tell the folks at home that, but (laughs) sometimes I can't control myself and I end up trolling them. So (laughs) I know that's really, I'm not very mature. Sometimes I apologize. It's hilarious. Oh my God. Sweetie. Thank you so much again, my friend. Thank you, Al. I appreciate it. Anytime. And uh, thanks to all the uh, Breakabout listeners at home who took time to listen to our episode tonight. Be sure to subscribe and follow Breakabout wherever you get your podcasts. This is Al Malafronte signing off for the Broadway Podcast Network. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Breakabout. This is produced by the fine folks at the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit and subscribe at bpn.fm slash breakabout. You can find me online at break underscore a underscore bat underscore podcast. And you can also find the Broadway Podcast Network on Instagram at Broadway Podcast Network. It's been so great having you here with us today, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.